2024 AD. World War III lasted five weeks. World War IV lasted five days. Long enough for the nuclear missiles to leave their silos. Now, only two survive. Two mere movie critics left with a microphone. This is their story. This is Death by DVD. I am your host, Alexander Nash, and with me as always is my co-host and brutal Hank. I like that I'm a brutal and not one of the old seniles. Thank you, I'm not a renegade. That's true, every day I wake up and I get my starched red man thong and braid my hair and I go out and shoot people for Zardoz. It's not terrorism, it's for Zardoz. Wow. 30 seconds in, you bring up terrorism. It's that type All of right. night. So, kind of in an uncertain time in the present, and what will our future be? Well, every movie tonight will be talking about the future. Dark future. Not so much post-apocalyptic, although you could consider them post-apocalyptic films. We'll be talking about movies that are kind of uh, the darker end of science fiction and different uh, realities and kind of more philosophical science fiction films that all end very happy, but at the same time incredibly fucking dark. We're talking about, I don't know, what would you call movies like this, Hank? Uh, I wouldn't call them post-apocalyptic at all. Some of them I, I really would call horror. Um, one of which tonight I think the most the, the one most people wouldn't call horror, I'd say, is the most horrific. But just looking at the subject matter and what is horror, horrifying and horrific in general, you look at some of the topics and where we go into this future. I mean, dystopic future, I guess, could be one sort of thing. But at the same time, all three of these films not only represent what is going on right now in the United States, but pretty much around the world and where we as a race of humans are at. And a lot of it focuses on the selfish nature of humans and, and the thoughtless nature of humans and the lack Stupidity. of humanity. Well, most humans don't even really uh, have all of the credentials to be a human anymore. Most people only think about one-upping each other in money and this weird capitalistic idea of working until you die, and there's not a lot of humanity left to where we find uh, instances in humanity even more pure in the essence of animals, which is something we'll get into a lot later, but it's just a very bizarre idea and i think we've picked you know there's a lot of movies that you could add into this genre or whatever we're, we're going into like 2001 a space odyssey or even a clockwork orange sticking with kubrick but these specifically the three that we have the outlooks are are very different and i think i don't know i don't want to say we picked three of the greatest science fiction movies ever but we've picked really three uh, strong movies that all independently on their own have a interweaving idea that kind of holds hands with each, with each other and it's well, oddly they're all is about a strong kind statement. Of, uh, I don't want to say the word survival because I, I talk about that a lot, but it, it's kind of like that and it's not even so much of survival when you have to take it at life. It's not about that. It's basically survival in a in a crazy world that sometimes you've got to like drop even your morals 
to survive in a crazy time in a crazy place. I guess it's weird, but this is where we always come back to things with Death by DVD. Fucking Night of the Living Dead, Day of the Dead, Dawn of the Dead. It's obviously you're surviving for your life, but there is much more in the subtext of what's going on to the idea of survival and like what you just brought up with you possibly having to uh, extend or change your morals. I mean, let's look at Ben and let's look at uh, Captain Rhodes, two completely different people that had to change their morals. And I mean, one of them obviously took a completely uh, bitter and negative path. You have to look at even when you're talking about revolutionary things, you have to be practical about these ideas and you can't just to get kind of specific. I I know a lot of people aren't going to agree with me, but like kind of what's going on in Seattle right now, this like autonomous zone. Hey, that's kind of a cool idea. You need to figure out what the fuck you want to do with it and uh, get out of this idea because that's not going to last. They're going to come in and blast your ass. Eventually what you need to figure out is what you want out of it. What changes can you make to the world by basically holding three or four blocks hostage because it's not going to last. You're not going to have like a weird hippie commune in the middle of Seattle. You're going to have to like actually work with the evil oppressors and figure out what you can get out of it because there's only X amount of you. This is not the revolution of where like socialism is going to completely take over. It's just, we've got to make changes. They're going to get closer to something like socialism but you can't just go full in and just be like all anarchist crazy nonsense because that's ridiculous. You're like, that's childish. What you need to do is affect actual change as opposed to basically LARPing. What amounts to LARPing to carrying around a communist flag and going, look what we did. Yeah. It's going to be like that for maybe another three weeks. And then after that, good fucking luck. Well, let's look at something that Richard Stanley says, the prophetic wizard, Richard Stanley. Protest now, tomorrow it'll be too late. I mean, really? Yes. Protest? Oh, yes. Definitely keep protesting. But have an idea of what you want out of that protest. Yeah, exactly. You need to have some sort of idea for what this future is going to be. And when we get into our movies, one of the problems with almost all of our characters is no one has an idea of what tomorrow is going to be. They're all focusing on the now, which Charlie Manson preaches and says, get in the now, and you should. You should have your antenna up, like Cronenberg says. We're just name-dropping all fucking night on this episode. But you need to have a certain awareness of just not the outside world, but your world and what you want, and is you, what your want needs what is good for the collective. And unfortunately, it's not supposed to be a hive mind scenario, but the collective is your brothers and sisters, mankind, the world. If we just start fucking shooting each other all willy-nilly in red masks and thongs, we're not really going to accomplish anything. You also have to think about the optics of situations and realize how you look to other people that aren't completely like, you know, 25 years old and ready to take on the entire world. You got to work with everybody and you got to figure out a way to actually make effective change as opposed to just screaming about change. And this is not like so much about, (sighs) yes, rioting is not smart. Burning out a business is not smart. I get why you're doing some people are doing some things like that. And I understand like the Antifa and the, the anarchist and why they're doing it, but it's not, that's just going to make everybody think you're crazy. Be as peaceful as possible and get your ass kicked by cops because then people will listen to you because then you don't look crazy. Then the cops look crazy. So yeah, you might need to take an ass whipping as opposed to like, you know, burning down a building that's not going to do anything, but make you look like a fucking criminal and crazy. Uh, On the same aspect, I have a a little 
difference with you on that because I think not peace is found through rioting, and I definitely agree that peaceful protesting is an idea and helps things get done, but in a lot of instances, these buildings that are being torched and burning are massive uh, pieces of economy that have crept in and ruined neighborhoods and taken away from the people that were there for years beforehand, and a lot of statements have to be made. It's past the time where you can stand and peacefully be paid attention to. Weapons of mass destruction and fucking Geneva anti-Geneva Convention weapons are released upon people. I mean, we're the only nation that's tear-gassing our civilians, and there's something wrong with that. But in agreeance with you, uh, there has to be a peaceful way, yeah, but it's easy for two white guys that haven't had a lot of the strain and stress of some of the people that are uh, ha have the thumb or the knee of the fucking government on the back of their neck and what they're dealing with right now. I don't know, no justice, no peace, but it's not a Rodney King riot. It's not the same thing. It's not every comparison that people have and what you see massively in the media is, well, this is like the other riot, and this is like blah, 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 and this every revolution is completely different. What has to be taken into perspective and what I think needs to be evaluated is people do have a great deal of privilege that they're not aware of, and you have to look at what side of that fence you're on and where... What would you but, do? Well, you know? That's kind of my point, though, is getting people to realize what that privilege is and to actually confront it and deal with it. Because screaming sometimes helps, but sometimes it also pushes people away. It's, it, you, I mean, it's a, it's. I don't disagree with the message at all. It's just sometimes how you deliver the message does not really win anyone over too much. Sometimes it's necessary, and sometimes breaking shit is complete praxis to what your message is. But at a certain point, you've got to get past that stage of it and figure out how we can do this effectively and really make a bunch of change as opposed to, like, because, I don't know. I just think there's a lot of, and this has not, I'm not even talking about specifically Black Lives Matter as a movement itself. That movement's fine because they're speaking up for things that are incredibly important. It's all the side... We've got to get rid of capitalism. Yes, we do. We most certainly do. But if you think you're going to get rid of it in like the next month to two years, that's dumb as fuck. You're going to have to win people's thoughts and minds over first. This is going to take time. It's going to take time to get people off a capitalist system. And I'm talking like 30, 40, 50, sometimes 100 years. You're going to have to slowly. There is no taking over the city and now we're socialist that's that that does not that has never worked and it will not work you have to change everyone's mind that was the good thing i will say is mr old fucking honky ass liberal over here the good thing about bernie sanders it's a little bit of change that's what you got to do because most people are like oh that doesn't sound so crazy maybe everybody does deserve health care that's kind of how you have to do this shit it's a slow transition you may not get it but generation below you might get it i think a big problem is a lot of people putting their hands in a situation that was started for something else and what is most important is black lives matter and the movement that is uh, important and what was struck from this and what needs to be bearing in people's minds is black lives matter this isn't a matter of antifa this isn't a matter of fascism this is a matter of black lives matter all these other things are fire yes these are they, they're also important yes they're very important but, but this was the first thing at hand. This was what was going on until nine other people said, what about me? What about me? This isn't about all lives. This isn't about police lives. This isn't about black lives. 
And, you know, I, I definitely take a different stance from you, and I'm more on the all-cap cops or bastards side. And I don't by any means condone forms of violence or hurting one another, but I don't know, revolution has to start one way or another, and we all have the confines and safety of our houses and the internet and lies and history books, but nothing started peacefully. The way this country was founded, uh, not only mentioning the rape and pillaging of the natives, but it was through violence and the Boston Tea Party, and unfortunately, revolution isn't always calm. Thomas Jefferson said something to the effects of the tree of liberty must be refreshed with blood every few years, and it's not some weird Masonic statement, but... The tree of liberty must be refreshed from time to time with the blood of patriots and tyrants. Unfortunately, if you are against your government, you might have to rise against it, and that makes you a fucking terrorist, and I can't condone anything, but if you're out there fighting and, you know, you are an anti-fascist and you are standing up for black lives, I salute you and thank you. I mean, that's that's all I can say really on the matter without making myself uh, a, a member of either side or party or, you know, trying to divulge uh, a lot of personal, you know, ideas and thoughts and ideologies on the show, but I salute you, and I... I think you're doing the right thing. I think you're on the right side of history. Yes. I mean, it's all, it's not to meant to sound negative, but it's more along the lines of what you were saying is you can't have revolution without a little blood. And I understand that. But at the same time, you, when you're having a revolution, the smart way of doing it is to optimize exactly everything as opposed to going for the quick and dirty way, because the quick and dirty way you're fucking outnumbered at the moment. What you need to know is whose blood, when it's going to fall, why it's going to fall, and where it's going to fall. It's not about drawing blood. It's not about injuring the uh, the no. monster. You have to realize this Hydra has a lot of heads. you got to figure out which one. You can't just attack. This isn't about chaos. And the idea of anarchy is so appealing to people because that's, I think, what attracts most people is that word. And it's very... Uh, symbolic and it's very stimulating and it's very simulating at the same time I and mean, there's so many ideas and you get this a aspect of what anarchy is and a peaceful society can't exist inside of rebellion and violence but it's just i mean this is such a difficult topic but it's why we picked the movies and why we're going into this show so it's not like we're trying to dance around things or uh not appear to be what we are or how we feel and I mean I don't mean that by like uh, political ideologies or left or right but I mean you feel a certain way it's what you kind of are and you have to you know deal with that and that's uh, to to not get into something but to I've made a lot of references to the movies tonight but you got to look at what you want and what you're going to get and <laughs> that's really important what do you want because that's probably what you're going to get and it might not be what you want so don't fight for something for the inherent need you know you need to look at what the statements are you need to look at black lives matter and, and it's just ridiculous to me how it's taken as a, a terrorist organization they don't know blah 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 just shut the fuck up uh, you're not if you're not black shut the fuck up because it's not a matter anymore it's it's you've had a pedestal you've had a time and it's needs to be recognized it might be over you know just jordan peele's entire statement of why he likes to use african-americans in films he's seen white movies so What's the problem with it? Well, at the same time, it's I don't understand why you care. Why do you care about some perceived notion of superiority or like what? 
Do you really have something in your heart for Christopher Columbus and Jefferson Davis? Do you really care that much? Something you just said has has always baffled me, this conceived notion of um, superiority. What does that offer you? And it's been such interesting, you know, just an idea. You meet these people, and Nazis, uh, neo-Nazis. You've got these white pride guys. What does that accomplish and do for you? Like, I'm fucking so much better than everyone else because I got Icelandic Aryan blood and Thor's up my ass and all the gods are there and fucking Loki jerks off with me and I got my fucking cool tattoo. And what does that do for you, though? Where does it get you up in life outside of your weird little, like, we're going to wear nightgowns It gets you some sort of sense of fucking community because more than likely you have some issue of growing up and feeling alienated, so you join a weird, goofy-ass group and get yourself into trouble because you start believing a bunch of wholly unsavory nonsense shit that makes you feel better about yourself. And when you just really probably just needed to go to see a therapist, because, like, I don't know. It's it's hard for me to, like, sit here and talk about a bunch of crazy right-wing fucking weird Nazi shit and white birth rates and all that. Like, are you, are you kidding me? You, like you really care about this. What if white people get bred out? I, I don't care. I sincerely do not care. It's a good thing. There's plenty of Brown people. I mean, who cares? What's the problem? There's still people. The whole point is you're Our a human. culture. What culture? What the blues? Yeah. White people came up with the blues. Sure. They did. They came up with jazz too. What else? Rock and roll. What did they come up with? But it's the human race, I think, that truly matters. What matters, what, uh, who cares what the color is? It's that we live on as humanity. Isn't, shouldn't that be the driving point and the survival behind things? You've got this backward ideology of, well, I'm, I'm white, I'm superior. But we're all humans nonetheless. So wouldn't you just want the human race to continue at any capacity, which it could? And that's where we're going to be getting to our first movie. Because, A, we've rambled long enough. And, B, this is kind of where I was going with a little film called Zardoz. Oh, good. Because I was trying to steer to Zardoz, too. So we're both on the same wavelength tonight. Well, if you want to get, like, super topical with, like, please, spoilers for Zardoz. And I do not feel like explaining the plot to anybody. So watch Zardoz first. But, okay. Within Zardoz, what you end up having is you end up having Sean Connery playing this brutal character or somebody who is known as less than of, of some way of being. Well, hold, can white. I interrupt you for a minute? What you brought up does uh, definitely help that there are this is like a game of Dungeons and Dragons when it comes to Zardoz. There are keys and classes to the characters. So you've got the immortals. And then you've got the apathetic immortals, and then you've got the renegade immortals. We'll get to those in a little while, but more importantly is what Sean Connery is, and he is a human with a lifespan that is called a brutal or an exterminator whose entire job is to be a brutal exterminator. Well, his entire job is to fight and fuck and give grain to the god of Zardoz, and they in turn get guns to be more brutal. And at the end of everything, please watch Zardoz first, you have a character of Arthur Frayne creating this god Zardoz to lead these brutals to ultimately come back in a rebellion to kill all the immortals because the immortals have gotten bored with life to controlling everything and living these. They don't even fuck anymore. They don't know what energy, life, love, anything is anymore. So they pretty much craft their own fate and their own deaths because they're tired of this life. That is the ultimate plot of Zardoz, and we'll get into specifics on all this stuff later. I just want to come out with a full-on idea 
of how this relates to modern society. Because this is kind of where we're at. Well, the idea you're discussing heavily, though, is eugenics. And that's where the basis of Zardoz comes from, is the character Zed, played by the triumphant Sean Connery, is pretty much bred through eugenics to get to this point in history, which is an idea that... Um, dare I say, is American at its heart, is, is at its core, but was most aptly used, I guess, by the Nazis, where they attempted to breed their Aryan well, I mean, bullshit. apart from the eugenics part of it, just the overall framing of the story with the immortals, you have this upper society, basically, and all the scum underneath. And it seems like the upper society is, like I said before, is creating their own fucking doom, which is kind of what... We're at right now, specifically in America, with large, rich corporations and people. They're fully masked off now. They're basically, I don't care about people. It's all about the almighty dollar. It's never, ever been about you or survival or anything. It's a game of always having the dollar be more and always taking more and taking more. And that's just how it is. And it's almost like corporate America just has crafted its own fucking doom. And the rest of America, we're all the fucking brutals because, and this is kind of what we're going through now with, you know, you have riots and you have some, you have protests well, and all this, on. but there's not just the brutals. There's the exterminated. I mean, there's one last class because the brutals have to exterminate people. Their job is to go out and crush. So that leaves another people underneath that, the ones that get crushed. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's there's hierarchy, but I mean, the brutals, you could even say that they're fucking cops in some way or some other thing. But I don't think the cops are here to set us set us free from the uh, the, the corporate overlords of our uh, of our creation. But at the same time, that's the underclass is coming back to take the controlling class over because the controlling class, I think, at this point in history are honestly getting really bored I think they're getting really bored. Like Donald Trump, I think is he's just full on. Yeah, I'm fucking. I don't care. Fuck it. I'll say I hate black people to get the Nazi vote. Whatever. Because I don't think he even particularly wants to live anymore. I think he's done so much of everything and just lived in so much fucking like disgusting wallowing in his own depravity. That just nothing affects him anymore. And I think the only thing that's going to make him feel anything is some sort of revolution or him to be overthrown or him to be put in jail or anything. I think he just is asking for it at this point because he needs to experience something. He's almost like fucking pinhead. I've been taken to the realm of fucking experience. And now the only thing I have to experience is having a fucking revolution pulled on me. I think, too, it gets to a point that some of these people aren't even aware of what life is. And what you're given in Zardoz is all these immortals are sort of the second generation, and they were born into it to an extent. They were the first people given this gift by their parents, and all of the antiquities, such as romance and love and sexual nature, is completely gone, so it becomes absolutely mundane, which is a true aspect of life. Most life is mundane, but people, uh, some people and especially the older generation and the 1% generation have this idea that work is freedom. You know, what they had up at Auschwitz on the fucking sign, you know, freedom by work or some bullshit about lying to the general people that this is what you have to do. Work, obey, consume, die, and you'll have money for your new PlayStation and your fancy car, and you'll be able to have all your vices as long as you slave away and do all of this under whatever contention they've given you. And then, like, the idea of Zardoz, you have... 
a deity that is, you know, kind of given to these people. So they're absolutely under control, not so much by capitalism or a demographic government well, or something. It's a fake god for yeah. the, the ruling class to, like, hey, here's something for you to believe in. Here's something for you to worship. We don't even care about that ourselves. What we care about is the power. But that's something that's really used in our country, especially, is this uh, Judaic Christian ideology. And we'll get into this with uh, another film on the list. But it's a representation of literally a false god, a false flag. All of these things are done because of the idea of God. You know, well, we can't allow homosexuals to have marriages and be able to have health care because in this book that I believe in, it says that they're pretty bad people. So, Not only that, but it's not just, well, we're going to take their rights away, and then you have a perceived sense of superiority. Well, they shouldn't have the right to get married because my white husband and wife marriage is superior to that. And in what way is it superior? I don't know. I don't know how the fuck you could think that, well, man and woman can have babies and gay dude and like lesbian can like have a goddamn agreement and make a baby. And then have like, I don't know what the fuck you're talking about. It has nothing to do with anything. You can hire somebody to have a baby. We're past all this shit. There is no importance in anyone's coupling. Well, what you just said, too, is kind of nailed a hammer is people look at these rights and they feel the sense of superiority. But what happens when your rights start becoming infringed upon? What happens when they say you can't carry your gun inside Walmart? Or what happened if they said everyone that drinks Bud Light's going to get shot in the back of the head? What if smoking got banned? I mean, look at this vape ban that smokers started celebrating the entire idea. Well, fuck them. It became this whole weird, uh, pussies vaping? You're a pussy who vapes? Where people were trying to stop smoking, which kills you, which literally says on the fucking pack, I'm smoking right now, I'm one of these idiots. It fucking kills you. But for some reason, uh, there's no worry or thought about it. But if they banned goddamn cigarettes, it would become this massive fight about it. So you have to look at what's being infringed upon. But you're on to the right thing, because... Even someone like J.K. Rowling is that and how you this say whole her last thing name? of writing. S- I've always wanted yes. to know. That's I um, thought it was Rowling. Uh, but going through this, she went through some large document of talking about how she doesn't like. I support all transgender people except when it comes down to fucking bathrooms because I don't want women to get raped. Are you fucking serious? Because I don't like. Are you? There's transgender people in your bathroom already. They don't have to ask permission. And a woman can rape you, JK, in a woman's bathroom. Or a man can just show up in a woman. Like, what is this law keeping supposed quote-unquote men out of your bathroom really protecting? Absolutely nothing. It's protecting nothing whatsoever. You're just having some imaginary line to draw on the fucking sand. Transgender women are women. Transgender men are men. It's just that simple. It's a basic plain concept. Is this what's happening on Twitter? Yes, this is what's happening on Twitter all the time. But getting back to Zardoz, you even have the apathetics. And what is upper middle class lifestyle other than being apathetic, being this fucking slave to this grind of just... Well, not even uh, just that. You've even got what I was just referencing of the people that it's not affecting me, that entire crowd. It's not come for me yet. I don't care. It's not infringed upon my rights. And it's the same argument when people bring up, well... Plenty of black cops kill white people. Uh, then why aren't you mad about it? I mean, doesn't that bother you? Isn't there something that you could do to maybe stop this or stand up for it? But all of a sudden, when black lives start standing up for it, there's a fucking issue at hand. 
So you've got this apathetic general public of people that are either on the upper class scale that don't care because they're protected and they have their insurance and everything's okay, and then you've just got these randoms that wander around the earth like zombies and they just don't care. It's the same people that you see refusing well, to wear masks. Care of. That's the bored housewife. Just like somebody come in and like I mean what and like inevitably happens with bored housewives. Somebody comes in and they have an affair, they have some sort of crazy thing. Like I've never felt more alive because you turned your emotions off a long time ago. And in the case of Zardoz, it's literally just being able to see his sweat. The sweat of Sean Connery wakes up and creates a sexual fucking revolution. That's right. Sean fucking Connery. And just seeing him sweat and understanding what too. actual raw visceral emotion is about and feeling again. It's the same basic notion, though, of just like you need somebody to come in and wake you up from this boring fucking lifestyle of watching football every weekend with your goddamn husband and being bored out of your fucking mind. We'll talk about that later also, because that comes up as a relevant theme in another movie that we have. I think one of the really interesting concepts that is dealt with and delivered with all of Zardoz is not so much that they're bored, it's that they've gotten to a point almost uh, like evolutionary with their idea of eugenics that nothing really matters. And this is like the answer to infinity, and that's just a question people want. You know, what if I could live forever? What if you lived for 200 years? And we don't really get an age gap or an age idea with how old these immortals are, but it's obviously long enough for them to have completely gotten rid of the... Uh, small sensual things that matter in life and you know it's like there's this concept that sex is love which it absolutely is not whatsoever but there is pleasure and emotion and feeling and all these other things that are, are a part of that concept and all of it's now a race there's no need for anything they've grown past a point of anything but sustenance so they just sit around and eat green bread and meditate and it doesn't work well getting back to like this whole concept that basically Donald Trump is Arthur Frayne, uh, even like a few days ago as the recording of this, uh, I'm going to sign some medical fucking shit that says, if you're a doctor, you don't have to treat somebody who's transgender. Okay. Well, that's fucking horrifying and it makes you kind of a fucking crazy ghoul. But the way you have been handling this presidency, it makes me feel like you did that on purpose just to piss trans people off. And just because you want them to hate you and you want them to take you down, it's like it's some sexual fetish for you to be murdered. That's what it feels like half the time with a lot of the things he does. It's like it's almost like you're doing on this purpose to cause a revolution, Arthur Frayne. I mean, especially during Pride. It's obviously a month yes. that was picked. It was something that was thought about. And it is. It's literal attacks upon the rights of people. And they just don't care. More or less, people are apathetic. I'm not transgender, so it doesn't bother me. But shouldn't it bother you? It fucking bothers me. <laughs> uh, you've got the idea of people, you know, well, I'm going to call the police on so-and-so because they're having a gathering or doing something. And you have this idea of, what if they were Jewish? What if you were mad because all your neighbors were Jewish and having a party and you called the police on them? They just take them away, right? Yeah, 
to a nice summer camp. It's the same place your dad took your dog when you were six years old. That's definitely where they're taking them. It's not a concentration camp. It's not a detainment center where their rights that you are so afraid of being taken away literally are stripped and they get fucking bags put over their heads so they can't see where they're going. That's what happens. That's what happens when you look at your neighbors and go, those Mexicans are partying too much, and you call the fucking police on them. There's, there's no love of the human race anymore. There's no concept of we're all just human. There's a differential of, uh, uh, well, I'm an immortal, so I can look down upon you, and we just let the others stay. They don't do anything with them. They just have these catatonics kind of existing. And, you know, even to an extent like the elderly, that you've got an entire realm that has been banished, that all the immortals that do something wrong are aged, and they're pushed away even if they fall into senility or That's the ultimate, yeah, the ultimate punishment in Zardos for an immortal is you get aged, like prematurely aged. And what, look at, again, someone like Donald Trump with his fucking fake tan and his fake fucking hair and uh, you're 70 something and you're overweight and you're probably got like really hardcore diabetes and shit but i'm fine i'm perfectly healthy you're lying to yourself and most of these people especially among the uh, quote-unquote karens in the world it's just like you know you you're awful you know this like lip filler you've put in makes you look awful do you know that like what life you're living is awful? You realize that. I don't know why you're running from it so hard. I don't know why staring yourself in the mirror and realizing who and what you are is so painful to you. But for Christ's sakes, I mean, that's the worst thing that could ever happen to you is to get old. How terrible. That's the biggest threat, and that's what happens to Friend. Friend is uh, in with Arthur and has an idea of what's going on, <laughs> and they're trying to make everything better. And his biggest uh, punishment is he has to be aged because he doesn't want to share his thoughts anymore. He doesn't want to share his thoughts because he just wants to die. And it's not like— I will not go to second level! Not with uh, you! Yeah, I just forgot all about that. It just reminded me. I will, I will not go to second level. Level? No. 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 I will. I will not go to second level with you. I will not be one mind with you. I know what is an obscenity. I know. I hate all women, birth, fertility, superstition. Friend is beyond redemption. John Alderton as friend is next to Sean Connery, probably the greatest performance in this movie. But I mean, Charlotte Rampling as Consuela is great. And uh, we were, you know, his lack of wanting to evolve is what causes a problem with everyone else because they've all evolved to this point where nothing matters anymore. And like the character Consuela and Mary, I guess prior to their immortality, had a relationship and felt compassion and love for one another. And later on, as everything has become sterile and cold and nothing seems to matter because it's just a scientific standpoint as to where they have no even idea of arousal or why something like that would be caused that they've, they've gotten that literally cold. Uh, May says to her, Consuela, you're hurting me. Like, what's happening? What you're doing with uh, Sean Connery's character Zed, they're pretty much giving, I don't know, a, 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 is the cat alive or dead in the box experiment with 
what this character may do to them, that no one really knows what's going to happen, and this is causing pain, but it's not physical. It's it's an aspect of we had love and compassion for each other, and you're replacing me, that you're feeling sensations that I no longer feel, and that's uh, just a bizarre concept, and like kind of where we're driving with this of, well, I don't really care about transgender rights because it doesn't affect me. I don't really care about Black Lives Matter because it doesn't affect me. That's not the point. It doesn't matter that it doesn't affect you. It should be that it affects somebody. It should affect you that the human race is being damaged and hurt, and you just don't seem to care because it doesn't arouse a feeling out of you. I do find it incredibly interesting, though, and this uh, almost has nothing to do with Zardoz, just back into politics. Um, you're very much concerned about getting that TGI Fridays open. It's like all you, you're desperately, and why can't these protests end? I mean, we have protests, and we just want to TGI Fridays open. You just want to go back to normal. And when I say normal, it's almost like death. You just want to go back to nothing happening in life and everything being secure and knowing that if I go to work, I'll have a chance of winning that pay lottery. Uh, you don't. It's it's like almost statistically impossible you're going to win this pay lottery. So you're just like kind of toiling away on this stupid dream. Why does everything have to go back to normal? Why does your TV have to bring back last man standing? Fuck all these riots. I want Tim Allen. Really, I, I just I don't see what your life is at this point. I don't understand who you are as a as a, a being. Well, they're slaves. It's to less than human. I mean, that's where the idea comes from and, and why Arthur has, has made the deity. And it's not just for the sake of killing them. It also had the idea of enslavement through work, enslavement through this uh, oh, yeah. deity belief that we're doing whatever to appease this god and there's a reward for it. That's always the catch, and that's what, uh, something with every religion. There's always some sort of catch. If I do this, this, and this, I get to go to uh, heaven, and there's going to be a bunch of big-tittied virgins, and it's going to be great, and everything's going to be awesome. That shouldn't be the catch to make you not be a fucking dildo your entire life, but apparently it is a necessity. But when you look at how it can be used to oppose people against one another, as it is in Zardoz, the entire force, their god, teaches them to kill and prey upon each other, and it's just to... There's no need for more people. They don't even create babies anymore. They don't even create uh, new immortals, that there is just their line, their lineage. And even if they kill themselves, even if they get hurt or something happens to them, they can be reborn in this bizarre uh, rain cube, which I don't know. The, some of the visuals that we've neglected to talk about when it comes to Zardoz are absolutely stunning and amazing. Super 70s. Yeah, I mean, the movie itself, it's something that the director, John Borman, hates to be referenced as a psychedelic film, but it does have a lot of those aspects, and a lot of them come to a guy called Bill Stare, and he, uh, he'd he worked with Borman previously. He did um, the, the Lee Marvin movie, and one of the essential things about that is how it was shot and the colors and how unique the uh, literally every scene is a completely different palette but it's the same you know there's a red scene a cream scene a blue scene and Zardoz is just shot with the most amazing lighting techniques which cause the movie to have a, just an incredible strange palette it just looks almost like a Monet painting and um even down to like a lot of the visuals and the floating Zardoz heads is really reminiscent of um Rene Marguerite, I can't think of the name of the painting, the floating rocks and they're float floating something. They're all called floating something. But it's just very stunning and stark visuals. And then Sean Connery's costuming is very bizarre, but the, uh, all of the movies bizarre. Uh, Crystal Borman, uh, John's wife at the time, did all of the costuming, and it's very chic, very late 60s. Um, 
it's all strange velvet. It's shot in Wicklow and the Irish countryside, and everything's just very, very dreamy and bizarre. And talking about just Zardoz as a movie, one of the really intriguing things, and uh, just watching it recently that really threw me away is the movie has its own fantasy that is very unbelievable, and you've got giant floating head gods and red-thonged, long-haired brutals killing people in very strange masks, and it's very sensual and very sexual, but the suspended disbelief of its own reality uh, just makes it very uh, earthy and real. You don't doubt a lot for some reason, and once you can kind of get to the point of what Zardoz is, it just has a fluency that I find amazing and is almost timeless. And it does look dated, and it definitely is strange effects. I mean, I think the movie cost a million dollars to make, and something like this now with CGI would be bloated like a dead horse with how much it would have cost. But it's just... And I'll talk about this later with another one of the films. It just has a timeless aspect that it's fantasy makes you believe it's real. The universe that you're presented in and the visuals that you're given with Zardoz allow the story to just be real, no matter how ridiculous it looks and how uh, just God, sometimes funny it is. And, I mean, it's not essentially a fucking comedy, but there is a lot of humor to it. Well, a lot of it has to do with just kind of how somewhat dated it is because it is very 70s. It is Sean Connery in a like a, a red jock strap for most of the movie. And so, I mean, visually, it's just kind of, at this point, reached a bit of a kitsch level but i mean it's coming back around it's a cult film it's, it's a cult film at this point and it's i mean i find it incredibly enjoyable i think uh yeah at times it can be really kind of goofy feeling but it does have a overall important message that i don't think john borman himself even particularly understood when he was making it i think he was just kind of doing this on the fly and had an idea and i think it he translated his ideas subconsciously into being way more interesting and important than he thought it was and how much it is about I capitalism, class consciousness, um, sexuality, a lot of different things. I think down to the visuals and a lot of the aspects of the story, Borman really knew what he was doing here, and he had done some uh, successful pictures before this and had just wanted to do something for himself, so he was coming down off Deliverance, and uh, God, I think he wanted... Um, Burt Reynolds for the lead. There was somebody else that he wanted for the lead also that I, I just can't recall off the top of my head. Lee Marvin. Haha. Well, of course it would have been Lee Marvin because they did. Lee uh, point... Marvin. I can't imagine. There's a guy named Zardoz around here. And I like, it would have been weird as fuck. They had a relationship from point blank, uh, so that makes sense. Uh, Lee Marvin didn't make it. Uh, apparently, Turd Ferguson himself, Burt Reynolds, wanted the role, but came in. You know, he had something else to do. Uh, Connor ended up getting it because he just couldn't get work anymore. He had just finished uh, wrapping up with Bond. He was done with it and moving on. And I, I think he got like $200,000 and got to stay at Borman's Castle. But a lot of the ideas come from um, Adolis Huxley. I can't remember the name of the book off the top of my head, but uh, it's a millionaire that pretty much figures out how to live forever. And he slowly starts to de-evolve into a more simian creature. So... He had some basis and some ideas with where he wanted to attack culture and some of the statements he wanted to make, but I don't think it was something like Rollerball, where there was a lot of uh, political ideology in the background. I think more or less a lot of it came down to um, you know religious I think they aspects. Were, yes, I think there were more like emotional overtones that he was throwing in that he didn't fully realize what he was like how. He, he was trying to interpret all these things to himself 
And I think it ended up being a way more political message than he originally intended. And I don't think he fully understood that message. But like I said, I think it tests the, uh, the like of time because of how relevant it is most of this is today that this is the same battle we're in right now. And I think in the late stage capitalism, that's exactly what this race of immortals is in. It's just like, I think they know that their own doom is coming. And I just don't think they even particularly care because I think they're just fed up with fighting for it anymore. Because once you get there, once you've made a billion dollars, let me tell you, it doesn't, I mean, I don't know for, for sure. I sure as fuck wouldn't be doing a podcast if I was a billionaire, but, um, I bet it gets really bland after a couple of days that, oh, I made another billion. Who cares? You've done it. So what is there to do anymore? Why do you think so many like super rich people do do so many horrible things throughout the world? Why do you think Tom Cruise wants to make a movie in space? And why he's jumping out of planes and acting like a fucking psychopath? Because there's nothing left for him to do. Once you've reached a certain height in humanity, it's like, what's the fucking point? So... That's kind of where we're at. Tear down the government. <laughs> well, I also see capitalism and fascism as an insect that uh, needlessly preys upon people, and that is an aspect that is an ideology, and people become obsessed with to the point that they work for the sake of doing it, for the sake of being a cog in the machine, for the sake of helping the insect feed upon the people, and it's not a thought. I think a lot of the immortals to say don't recognize what they're doing because they think that they're working for the betterment of mankind and unfortunately they're degrading and destroying society and helping this insect and this beast grow and that there are people that have had the awakening like arthur and create the idea and the mask of zardoz but again it returns us to something like blood being needed for a revolution that how much how much has to happen and the end of this movie, I think, is one of the most intriguing things because it ends in one of the most devastating scenes of violence. Recently, we discussed The Devil's Reign, and the end of that movie is a 20-minute melt scene of everyone just ooing and gooing and dying and turning into a big sloppy mess. And Zardoz is like the opposition of that. It's, it's the yin to that movie's yang because the end of this is these guys and these amazing masks. And if you don't know Zardoz, but you know Last House on Dead End Street, that's the mask, man. So it's all these guys and thongs wearing these crazy ass last house on dead end street masks killing everybody and it's just this explosive but that, gratuitous the, the, the people scene are like happy and oh, yeah, willing and waiting part. and asking for like please please kill me i want to experience it john alderton and niall buggy's death is is my favorite where they're joking back and forth of like let's kill each other old chum you know the, it's the greatest joke of them all and i think that's jo john alderton's friends the character friends last statement is you know it was all a joke that it's not nihilistic, and I think it's such a weird thing when you find reviews of this movie and you just constantly see that. It's just so dark, it's so dismal, it's nihilistic. You're fucking seeing it wrong, pal. You're just not looking at it the right way because these people have achieved enlightenment that they never would have otherwise. And you can even take it back with uh, what we were just saying, the religious overtones, and that possibly Borman had more of a, a Judaic idea with rebirth. And... That's kind of the, the Zed character, that he is born through this idea of eugenics and his father and fathers and father was picked and he comes to this point where he releases them. And the final sentiment of the movie is, if you watch, is he and um, Consuela age, it's not Consuela, it's May, isn't it? He doesn't end up 
no, I it's Charlotte. It's Charlotte Rampling. Yeah, it's, That's it's, all it's, I'm sorry, it's Consuela, Charlotte Rampling. As they sit and they age, the one keynote is his gun hangs on the wall behind them and turns eventually to rust as they turn to dust, symbolizing that with life and death, all things are equal and time is a flat circle. Uh, we're going to get into circles in a little bit with one of our guys here tonight who loves fucking circles. Yeah, it's... Like I was saying before, I just think that this is the natural progression of things, and that's currently where we are in societal things. It's why fascism will never prevail, and it never can prevail, because fascism is fucking cancer. Fascism will devour its own self eventually. It, it, I mean, it's just not a thing, because it's not about life. Progression, however, is always about life. Because things naturally have to progress. Even if progression means everybody dies, that's some sort of progression to something. Fascism and stopping and stalling things, that doesn't like that's not a thing that you can do. That's not how life operates. So fascism is antithetical to life and like at all. I think something not recognized is that death is just an equal part of life and that things have to die for rebirth and things to move on. I mean, it's like the aspect of burning down a forest to get it to grow back thicker. Sometimes things have to change. And you know, like that Thomas Jefferson quote, the tree of liberty needs to be refreshed with blood. Sometimes there has to be violence, but it doesn't need to be for the sake of violence. It's, and it also depends on the level of violence and what you consider violence, because to me, it's I'm all about, I understand some violence has to happen, but I'm also all about mitigating as much damage as possible. And damage, I don't give a fuck about property damage. Who gives a fuck about property damage? That's not the point. The point is to not cause irreparable death and that sort of harm. Because that shit has a tendency to spread. Let the fascists deal in the death and the violence, because that'll end up eating them alive. They'll eat themselves alive with their own violent tendencies. Just let it happen. It's not the the quickest way of doing things, but it's also, I mean, it's it's the, the best and like in mitigating damage for our side, I guess. Well, something that is, I guess, prominent to bring up isn't the fact that through eugenics the hero Zardoz is born. It's that the immortals, at some point, at least one of them, came up with the idea of solving their boredom, knowing that their reign of terror eventually had to end, but none of them even saw it that way. No one saw what they were doing as even wrong or uh, living forever, which brings up a question, I guess, of morals, if people should live forever or if the human race should be able to live thousands and thousands of years. But what we establish in the universe presented in Zardoz is that at some point everything comes crumbling down because you can climb all the mountains. You can see all the lakes and rivers and every bird in the world, and eventually there's nothing new. There's no stimulation. Uh, and it's shown really terrifically uh, throughout the entire movie with just insane visual effects. And one of the things that makes Zardoz incredibly unique, even now, is all of this is done on camera. There's no CGI. There's no uh, post-editing. Absolutely all the effects you see within this movie are done on camera. I mean, there are just uh, there's 16 millimeter footage shown through ghost glass that's being shown in real time and filmed. I mean, it, there's some amazing techniques, and what it comes down to is just the absolute beauty of John Borman as a director, who in the horror community definitely gets a bad card because of his work on The Exorcist 2, which was just an absolute shit show. But you've just got to look at the man in general, and uh, 
just some of his work, just the guy is, is especially with his use of color and something like I had mentioned with uh, the Lee Marvin movie, he knows how to invoke stimulation through color and how to make that bring something into your mind. And when we get to another movie later, I'm going to rant and rave about uh, motion pictures and why it, it, it matters getting everything that's important on the screen. It's not just sound design. What matters is being able to show people the story and letting them follow it through the visuals because a motion picture is still just a picture. You have to show it. Sound is great, but something like Zardoz and something we'll get into later What's important is shown to you, and the sound design is wonderful, but it's just the fact it's shown to you on camera. It's everything is on camera effects, which there's another movie like Everything Tonight Connects, goddammit. Well, we probably need to move on from uh, Zardoz, but in closing, I would just say, Hank, I will not go to level seven. Can we go to level eight? We cannot go to level eight. I will not go to level seven? I thought level eight's where we got Arby's after the show. That's all right. Uh, level nine is when you uh, you get green bread. I don't know. Let's move on. What's the next movie? It's a weird thing with John Borman's life. When this movie came out and started getting popular and had a bit of a cult following throughout the 70s and 80s, whenever he would come to the United States, check into a hotel, there would be loaves of green bread left for him from Zardoz fans. I don't believe him. There is... No Zardoz fan base. You're listening to the entire Zardoz fan base. It's me and you, and believe it or not, John Borman's still alive, isn't he? I'm pretty sure he is. He's in his like uh, late 80s, early 90s. He's kicking. Might it. be wrong though. So let's, uh, if we weren't dark enough in the first place, let's just go into really dark territory with uh, Richard Stanley, 1990 Hardware. Yes, Hardware, a movie I saw when it came out in 1990 on the Miramax VHS. The one that even before I saw it knew was heavily edited. And if you go back to the R-rated version, it's kind of hard to figure out what's going on because it is so he like heavily edited. Um, but anyway, now that it's out on DVD and all this stuff and you've got the full uncut version, you see the uh, the uh, beauty of Richard Stanley's orchestration of violence that he could do. And um, Hardware is an interesting fucking movie about the future, and it's not a bright future because in Richard Stanley's future, it's all pretty negative fucking shit. It's all a lot of bad things. There's corporate wars. Um, there are Richard Stanley's future is much more, um, I, I guess, I mean, cause we had a clear cut and ideas of a lot of politics from your end, but Richard Stanley and especially hardware, I think really encompasses, I don't want to say, my anti-human life, but this is really an anti-human movie, and it shows it's not much of a belief. It's not that anyone specifically is anti-human, but I think looking at where we're at with society and where we're moving with the world that quickly the human race doesn't matter. And there's a lot of weird rants Richard Stanley goes on about robots and drones taking over that uh, years ago might have been somewhat laughable, but it's, and I've brought this up before, and it's always difficult discussing Richard Stanley because I swear he's a fucking wizard, and he's just prophetic, and he knows things, man. It's just hard for him to get them out. I swear, he really, truly is a wizard. But what he has shown is not like, you know, it's, it's not unlike Blade Runner. It's a corporate-run society. It's not unlike something like Rollerball, but what we're given here is visuals that we already see in places like Flint, Michigan, not alone uh, Afghanistan, but just very destructive, gone, wasteland society. That this is sort of like, 
you know, this is what I imagine things looking like between Mad Max and the Road Warrior. There is no hope for a better tomorrow. It's already far gone. I've interpreted and like I it's been a while since I've watched like the commentary and hardware because Stanley gets really in depth on most of these things and like his backstory because he's got a lot of like backstory and shit written in his own head that he's only able to visualize and not actually, you know, give a like, you know, effective amount of story in it. But I don't think this is a post-apocalyptic world as much as it is like a post-capitalism world, as it seems to me. It's just like this is the natural progression of killing the environment, the natural progression of letting corporations run the yeah, world, world the way War they have. hasn't happened. There's not been like nuclear devastation. This has just been the evolution of time. This is where we're at, that it's just, you know, trash compacted upon trash. It's not roving riots and murderers in the street and everything is awful and toxic wasteland zombies, which is kind of funny because uh, there's a story that I don't know. You probably have read it, though. The Blade Runner novella that William Burroughs wrote. Oh, I, no, I don't think I've actually read that one. It has nothing to do with Blade Runner. It just was a similar title. In fact, I think Ridley Scott ended up paying Burroughs some money to use it for uh, the motion picture. Taking Tiger Mountain, Bill Paxton's first movie, is somewhat kind of based on this a little bit. But it's an idea where uh, the corporate wars and the church has pretty much taken over the world and everything is left in just this very awful society. There are zombies and cannibals and uh, the Hudson River is filled with sharks and giant rats. And to me, a lot of it has a lot of visual representation of that and you know, even ideas from T.S. Eliot and Huxley of what's going to happen, the, the world not ending with a bang but with a whimper and society kind of falling to a point that you know, even comparing it to like uh, years ago in China where you uh, years ago, I think it's still happening where you literally can't have children. You have to go on a registry and you have to uh, make sure it's a son and you can't produce certain places, you, you know, produce. It sounds like we're talking about live ca uh, livestock, but that's kind of how the idea I'm farming is, you know, uh, the Matrix. You know, everything doesn't really matter. Power cells. Humans are more of a workforce. You've got throughout hardware, Angry Bob, Iggy Pop yelling uh, all these really prominent things that kind of show you what's happening in the world and you know a, a thousand jobs are opening up and it just gives you this really horrible idea that all humans are worth at this point is just getting something done there is no life there is no living even to the extent that one of our lead oh, characters there's, there's is, literally just surviving and like what's well, happened not even to surviving the world. i mean look at our lead character she smokes government weed the entire movie never leaves her apartment and only watches tv she's completely subdued she is dumbed down by this aspect of uh, TV. I mean, and again, like you brought up, there's a lot of these ideas from Richard Stanley that don't come on screen, that he's got this idea of this fascist right-wing dictator who does show up throughout the movie without any backstory, and you don't know who he is, and there's just so much with his environments and world that don't quite make it on screen, but when you get the allowance to know them, it helps make the movie so much better, and, you know... Well, he's the hardest you working talk. man in like weird backstory in film that is never particularly translated to the screen. I mean, it is. It's there like visually and in other ways, but like the the amount of depth is like they're almost like novels, and you would almost need to like read the script yourself to figure out who this uh, the dictator is, who like the uh, the the capitalist the corporation has taken over. Like, what has happened to um, to Mose or Moses? Like, because he's a soldier, but he's also been poisoned by radiation, and he's he's dying for the most part. I mean, um, there's a wasteland, but it's all seeming to What's be a zone not trooper? so much 
about a giant war as little tiny skirmishes and like climate change refugees. Well, and... I mean, let's look at something like the dwarf character. That it wasn't some, uh, you know, Mad Max. Let's put a dwarf into the movie idea, but it was supposed to be a representation of you're not going to get superpowers. Uh, radiation isn't going to make you see through walls. It's going to cause uh, slow effects and degeneration of what you know the human cell is and shit like that. And that was sort of the idea behind Richard Stanley using that character. And what he wanted to show is that the way the world is going is only going to degrade us. And it's only going to turn us into a point of people, the 1%, the immortals, as in Zardoz, having to solve the situation, which is essentially what happens in Zardoz, that Arthur has them kill each other so the population control stays down and what we're getting into. And this isn't completely clear-cut because Stanley really had a, a whole direction for uh, Hardware 2 that never really got to, to come to fruition. And what we need to take into consideration is the Mark 13 robot. We never see it its full form. So we don't exactly know what it's for, but we're given a very good idea that it is population control. Yeah, and... They yes, they've never really talked about it. There's, it's just one of those things that it's happening kind of in the background because at the end of the day, this is just it's a horror movie about a killer robot killing well, people. Um, just to the interrupt reason... you again, that takes us back to the beginning of the show where you asked me what do I think of these movies, and uh, you know I uh, with we just got through Zardoz, and that one's kind of hard to convince that it's a horror movie, especially with the ending that I, I truly think this and the next picture are horror films, but Zardoz really is a science fiction movie. I think at its heart, at its core, that's what it's translating and what it's showing. It's just not your star Wars idea. It's not in space and uh, fuck the movie. That's what he wanted. Borman wanted all the immortals to be in a spaceship the entire time. And um, the art designer had worked on 2001, a space odyssey and pretty much, that's it. That's what you see in space. It's not that enchanting. Talking about Zardoz, sorry. We're on hardware. <laughs> well, I mean, like, because essentially what hardware is, is a slasher film, but it's probably the most, like, literate and overly written slasher film of all time. It's got probably pages and pages and pages of backstory for what is essentially a killer robot thing. But that's what's great about Stanley is he is so in depth with his worlds that he's creating and hardware is a very in depth world because it's created mostly from scratch. I mean, like in something like dust devil, you have a kind of a pre existing thing, but you have like him creating, well, not even creating, but like using a bunch of different myths and concepts from different religions and magic to create this world. And in hardware, it's just kind of the natural state of where the world could be heading and more than likely is heading in the future. Here's a sentiment to exactly what you're saying. Do you know where all those outside scenes with Shades and Dylan McDermott were filmed at? They were they're just filmed in London, weren't they? It was a dock town in Wales. All the other pickup yeah. shots. I mean, because the movie was supposed to be uh, the the dystopic idea of London, and it was the Weinstein's and Miramax that wanted it to be American. So. I don't. What is it? New York. I mean, it's it doesn't matter. It's, it doesn't um, fucking matter. It's a goddamn weird, fucking melted ass city that's just full of like fucking poor people are wanting to eat. None of that was really decoration. None of that was a lot of set design. That they found a dock town in Wales, and that's what it looked like. Uh, according to Richard Stanley, it's very posh and looks very nice now. But of course, that's what happened. Uh, let's look at Hell's Kitchen. Troma had to move. It's it's not even dirty enough for Troma anymore. And well, and incredibly expensive to live in when you've 
like made the property taxes as fucking high as they are because that's what we naturally do is take cities over and try to let's make this make some more money again because the most important thing is money not the fact that you've lived here for 70 years and you can't afford your apartment anymore well we're just going to bulldoze that apartment but that's a different story kind of because it's all figuring into the world of hardware but you know what this block really needs that used to be a historic landmark where slaves were sold and given away and people's entire lives were ruined? I think it needs a Starbucks. I think it'd look really great with a Starbucks. And then we can put a sign right outside of the Starbucks saying, Any Town USA's Slave Block. I bring this up because the town I live in recently, and this is a disgusting story, the town I live in recently got rid of their slave block. It's fucking 2020. Our town just got rid of its slave block. Let that sink into you. That's just the most baffling thing. And the reason that this slave block has stayed where it is, which is in the middle of a street corner in the downtown area, is because it sits in front of a butcher. And the butcher feels that it brings in business to him. So you essentially are building your business off the death and enslavement and rape and just absolute pillaging of an entire culture. We, but no, 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 we gotta keep the slave block around to remind you that that's where my great-granddaddy sold your great-granddaddy. But no, no, I, I think we're equals, do you? We'll get rid of the fucking slave block then. Is that well, where history on. is learned history. from? I mean, is that where people get their concept of knowledge of the slave block in the ground, or is it from books? Is it from knowledge? Is it from going to museums and seeing the stains of past that have been contained? I mean, imagine walking down the street and there being giant swastikas everywhere. That doesn't exist in Germany anymore. They got rid of them. Because they're fucking... They're, what's the memory that you're holding on here for? I mean, even right now in uh, Virginia... I can't believe that they're going to get rid of this Robert E. Lee statue. But the South technically lost, and they went to war against the United States. That means they're traitors. They were traitors that fought against the greater nation that you are a part of, and you were rooting for a terrorist cell of douchebag. And then you look at this environment and the situation where everyone's living in hardware, and like in the introduction when Mo and Shades are walking down the street, there was a scene that was cut that it just sucks that it was cut, but it was... Both of these characters walking past youths, children, just beating the hell out of an old man. And none of them do anything about it, and Miramax wanted it cut because you, you can't be sympathetic to these characters that wouldn't stop the situation. You're but, not supposed to be sympathetic to them because they're pieces of shit, well, it's even not though even they that. are your protagonists. What you're supposed to uh, feel the invocation of with that scene is that this is everyday life. They're not gonna. This happens all the time. They're not going to stop it. That old guy might no. have done something. Who knows? Morality's no got out the window a long time ago like yes. the world that you live in is not this world this world is like literally children beat men to death constantly so much so it's a problem and yeah we just kind of ignore it now because there's, there's no doing anything about it Kind of back more to that apathetic thing from Zardoz, but go ahead. Well, censoring Richard Stanley's vision, unfortunately, is one of the things that brings faults to hardware. But if you look closely, a lot of the ideas are still there. Like the movie begins with this uh, this this zone trooper, um, Carl McCoy, the lead singer of um, Fields of Nephilim or Nephilim. I always say it wrong. Fields of Nephilim. And it's just this uh, man in black character, a transition that you will see throughout all of Stanley's work, something that comes uh, also into Dust Devil, where these films are very interchanging, you know, because uh, Dust Devil ends where hardware begins, but hardware is uh, the previous movie. But it's just this world and universe and this ever-changing circle that Richard Stanley sees everything as. And really, it all is. It's just one interwinding circle. Sometimes it burns out. Sometimes it meets in the middle. Sometimes it's infinite. But everything 
is a circle, and this character, the Nomad, brings the robot forward from the zone, and you're given an idea that, you know, it's not like a war zone, but it's a, a radiated area, a wasteland, and you have a thought that pretty much everything you know is gone. There are no more Walmarts and shopping malls. You can't run to the store and get cigarettes and beer. It's just an abysmal wasteland, and it's not safe. No, and it's... But all this, again, is just background. None of this is, like, actual text. This is all fucking subtext for what Richard Stanley does. Because once we get the the robot to uh, Moe's girlfriend, then... That's when the movie actually starts, and it's just about a robot who's created by this this fascist government to, for population control to kill people. Maybe? And, I mean, we really don't ever know what the Mark 13's creation is for, and that's something that I— and I, this is just commentary stuff, but it doesn't really help when you're doing a review or trying to discuss a movie bringing up what the director has to say, but I just find it really interesting that— Stanley repeatedly says we don't know what the Mark 13 was made for, which I don't know if he points you in a direction, it's because he wants you to, you know, recognize something. And again, like bringing up his use of circles, which brings is heavily used in a uh, dust devil. It's not as symbolic in this movie, but when you look at the story, it's kind of like the dragon biting its own tail that misery will consistently happen if you focus on misery. And all of these people are miserable because of the society they live in. Yeah, and society itself is just kind of sleazy. I mean, your next-door neighbor might be Porkins, a really sleazy dude who's possibly trying to rape you. But um, one of the greatest, like, fluff characters, like, literally the only reason this character and these scenes are in the movie is to pad it out to get it to feature length. But being able to use something so incredibly awful, and it's just this uh, sleazy, fat character in a Hawaiian shirt and... Yeah, there's nothing wrong with being fat, but it's the point that you wanted just something greasy, I guess, uh, like Slimer. I'm not saying Bill Hootkins is Slimer, but... <laughs> like Slimer, yeah, it's a very Slimer-style character. Well, apparently fucking Bill Hootkins like, got typecast a little bit because of this, and uh, his following roles, he kept getting greasy old men, and that's why Richard Stanley decided to make him the uh, the, the more fervent religious character in Dust Devil. Um, but he does a really good job of being this, oh, this God, he's character. The, he's but... literally the best. I mean, it's one of those things that it's just so unsettling and so disgusting. And the character's representation. I love when he, you know, I don't really think you and your boyfriend are working out too well. And he reaches over and he touches Jill and she just smacks him while holding a fucking blowtorch just a few meters away from his face. His, his just mannerisms as an actor. Bill Hootkins, check him out. He's a hoot. He's a Hootkins. Oh, we all walk the wibberly wobberly walk. And we all talk the wibberly wobberly talk. Oh, we all wear wibberly wobberly ties. And we look at all the pretty girls with wibberly wobberly eyes. I made that up. Well, I mean, speaking of these scenes specifically in this film is how Stanley can direct 
in the moment because it all looks like it's in the moment. Look, I mean, think about the the art direction and things like that. Think about how sweaty both characters are, that the power is out, that the heat is kicked in. Think about all these different levels that are going on within these scenes and how kind of beautifully he kind of puts it all together and sticks you in that moment. It's not just, I mean, to be frank, it's not a um, AIP movie from the 90s where it's just like burned out buildings and we're walking around a fucking broken down cement factory and goddamn Barstow, like fucking California. This is like actually putting you into a possible future world. And you can actually feel, you can actually see the, uh, the filth and grime on people. It's, it's, it can't be overstated to the, the art direction of the film being incredibly important. What's remarkable about that is the fact that most of the movie takes place in one setting. I mean, you don't really leave the apartment. One set. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> you, apartment. you have the the scenes that were shot in Morocco at the beginning of the movie, and then you have the the apartment, and that's just about all you're dealing with. And you are still given throughout all of that. I mean, what, like maybe one or two, I think two very tiny matte paintings to show you the cityscape during the scene where um, Dylan McDermott, Moe, is fighting the Mark 13 and... Jill falls into the the apartment below them. But outside of that, it's incredibly claustrophobic, and it's still wide enough that you get the idea that this is just a horrible landscape. And it's like, again, referencing China. You know, you can look at pictures of these buildings that just seem to stretch to the sky that are just apartment complexes, that are just tiny little rooms and cupboards of people living in, and you get this incredibly cramped idea of this society, this world doesn't value any form of human life. And that even brings us to the the robot that Dylan McDermott brings his girlfriend home, this robot, and it's a sentient being that slowly starts to rebuild itself. And we never actually get to see the, the true Mark 13, but what it builds itself out of scrap. And something that's, uh, I think, important to recognize is all of it's very human. That it's a cyborg. It's not just a robot. It's got uh, a wet brain. It's got some yes. sort of... Uh, not necessarily human, but as Stanley says, maybe uh, synthetic flesh grown for the idea, but its ideas are flesh-based. Its thoughts, on the other hand, are mathematics. So it's only attempting to finish its job. It's not evil. The robot is not a villain. It's not... I mean, if anything, it could be something... It's doing its job is what it's doing. It's doing what it's mostly programmed to do and what it's been like stimulated to do. Even the flesh parts of it have been stimulated to do, but you which is But you compare it to Michael kill. Myers. I mean, it, it has that same fear of the first Halloween movie. We don't know why Michael's killing. He has the mask. He's just killing. There's not a, a in-depth thing going on here, and that's a lot of the driving force and fear behind it because... At its core, you can't villainize the robot. If anything, you're villainizing uh, Mo for bringing it home as to where he was so unattentive in his life that he just brought this monstrosity home to his wife. And it doesn't, it's not like a sex thing, but. Well, Mo uh, is also very selfish, though, because. Well, that's what I mean. It's well, not a matter of sexes, but it's the thought of um, putting yourself in front of other people. Mo has no thoughts for her well, Mo he's only very has religious no and he's also like at a certain point kind of wanting a child and she's more along the lines of why would you want to bring a child into this fucking like decrepit decaying world and he just can't see it that way he like and it's it's a selfish act on his part because he wants a child not can we have a child can we support a child is there like 
is there good bringing a child into this world? And, but it has, figures into his severe like religiousness that he has because he quotes Bible verses the entire time. He believes in this hope of religion coming to save him when and in this future especially, there is no God coming to save you. There is only fucking death and like the fight against you being extinct. There could be a God, but it would be Zartoz. And that's the sort of you know, situation that you're dealing with here is this horrible, decrepit future where nothing absolutely matters, but he has his absolution through faith. No matter what he does or how he acts as a man, he still has that absolution completely through his faith. And again, it's something that's somewhat lacking in the story that isn't pushed into your face, but the representation of Mo is definitely a Christian, and that's uh, him blindly believing in something without even really knowing what it is, which... I guess can sound defensive, but for the most part, I feel most people that are, you know, absolute believers of Christianity don't really know uh, the full concept. They know what they've been told by other people, and they know what they've been told by a preacher, but they haven't really explored it themselves, which again is something that's very baffling with Christianity, because you're told explicitly to not study the words of other cultures <laughs> or other religions, because it will uh, damn you from the tongue of God and mislead you and all these baffling things. So you've got a Hank, very... would you like to know about modern Christianity? I can sum it up in two sentences. Ignorance. It's just uh, disbelief and xenophobia. No, no, no. You, you'll get this one pretty easily. Um, is that your Bible? It's a Bible. That's good enough, Hal. He's a Christian. That guy's a Christian. That's a nice Bible. <laughs> That's a Bible? Oh, yeah, yeah. He said Bible. That's the important thing. He said Bible. I never heard Hussein Barack Obama saying the words Bible. Well, he said it like a, a bunch because he's Christian. He said it like a whole bunch, more than I'm comfortable with personally, but whatever. Believe what you want to believe. And that's what I mean with it. People don't really know the story. They don't know the history behind the story, but they know what they've been told, and they firmly believe in that, like going and killing people for Zardoz or for this extent. I'm doing the right thing. I wanna, I just want to have this family. I mean, this is what we need to do as to where not even the character being explicitly an artist, she has her own motivations and she has her own path set. And it, again, it doesn't come down to a battle of the sexes, but it definitely is a patriarchal character attempting to impose their stern beliefs in a more masculine aspect. Like, look here, little lady, we're going to sit down and we're going to do this and everything's going to be fine. See, I brought you a robot. Don't you love me? I think she, and, and this isn't expressly or is, not expressed in the film, I don't think, but I think this is just more of an intuition I have. She seems even like kind of suicidal in the movie to me. And then when she is actually presented with absolute death coming at her, she it's not so much she gains the will to live as much as it is just like almost like a creature does, just like this instinct She's to live apathetic. throughout the film. She's not. I. I don't think it's. I. What you're onto. I definitely am. I back 100. percent But it's taken us back to fucking Zardoz. That she's an apathetic. Yeah. I just don't think she gives a shit. Yeah. She's not what's necessarily. What's the point of living anyway? Well, I mean, uh, I, I, I. I sympathize with Jill because I get that, and I get where I definitely understand that statement and what you were saying, and that gives a whole new. And this is one of the joys about. Uh, even just doing this show, one of the things that I absolutely love is I watched Hardware like three times this week, watched it with the commentary, found all the special features. I've been learning all this about Richard Stanley. And then you say something that completely invokes just a, a, a new breath of air into the movie, that it's not that she wants to give up, but what is there? 
you know, you look outside, you see the turmoil and the angst and the anger, and just nothing's happy. No one's happy. And in my lifetime, by the time I die, no one's going to be happy. Everything's going to be miserable. And it's like you said at the beginning of the show, this shit takes years. Capitalism just will not be overthrown. Black lives will not matter tomorrow. Uh, rights will still be stripped and taken away. You have to fight for it, and you have to figure out— It takes work. Yeah, you have to Actual figure out— work. Time, a lot of time and work. But sometimes, well, you have to figure out where the blood needs to be drawn, but in your own personal life, there are so many fights that are just as important. And I'm not saying your own psyche is more important than Black Lives Matter, but you have to have an argument every day in your head to get up and to, to do something. And most people are enslaved by, I have to get up to work and go and pay for this and this and this, that there is no freedom of individuality or life or your own thoughts or being able to just create in your own head to where you get this stereotype of like I'll reproduce have children work and you have people that just get bored and broken by that concept and they live outside the squares and they become uh, to an extent the apathetics because you are left with just uh, this disheartening sigh of well there is no place for me I'm not the family man I'm not the Christian I'm not Zardoz I'm not Zed I'm not whatever and you float into the uh uh, abyssal states of mind and concept and whatever and that's I think really where Jill's at that she is at a place of she can't find love she can't find contention within her own art she cannot find uh, a home of uh, her own mindset she can't find happiness and so she is left in this uh, dismal black void and no matter how hard Mo tries to make things better it just doesn't work because these minds aren't connecting it's not until the danger uh, is inserted and it's not just like you know, you're one thing, I guess, just making this rant longer, like you have the transition with shades that at the beginning of the movie, he drops some sort of space acid and it delves into that concept of when you're alone and you think you're safe and you think everything's OK, something bad always happens. The second you take fucking a big ass hit of acid, your mom comes over, you know, uh, a fight breaks out and that's your your friend's girlfriend is getting attacked by a robot. Yeah, <laughs> whatever. Some, some really, really bad stuff ends up breaking out. And I think, you know, where I'm trying to tie this entire thing together is that's really where uh, the apathetics kick in because uh, it's not, and you know, con connecting to other rants, it's not going to affect me. It's not going to transgress onto my rights. Things don't matter. And you become cold to the sentiment of things. But sometimes when. Uh, not just violence, but the fight for your life or the fight for your rights or the fight for something around you brings birth. Just like in Zardoz, goddamn again, when they uh, touch his sweat and they realize the invigorating notion of life. Even if that fight is strictly about like almost like a bug, because that's how she is in this film. She's almost like a bug who instinctively tries to survive. They're just I'm crawling away from the flame because this is what like I. All she does I is smoke weed. She just doesn't want to even exist. She works on her art. She gets stoned. She watches TV. I mean, even the sex scene, a lot of that was cut even in the extended version now where her and Mo make love. They were supposed to be making love under a giant TV screen, and that's why everything's blue, that even while fucking, they had to be watching TV. And it ended up being cut because Stanley used uh, World War II footage of concentration camps, and Bob and Harvey Weinstein don't like visuals they don't like fucking things looking good they like kevin smith and tarantino i don't know well they like a um, fair amount of safety safety in the movies yeah that's not definitely. safety for actors and actresses though fuck them apparently or human lives um, or people's individuality this isn't a weinstein thing though 
Well, that's, becomes, that's when we I do mean, the burning. You're that's talking about perception more than anything. Perception of who I am, because perception of Harvey Weinstein being this great fucking like humanitarian. It turns out he's a goddamn horrible fucking rapist. A mangled I mean, dick monster. He literally is fucking Cropsy from the burning. He's got a melted mangled dick, and he went and just all right. We'll save that for the burning. <laughs> that's in a couple of weeks. Yeah, wait for uh, that one, people. It's a real doozy. But overall, I mean. Back into hardware, there's a certain amount of same ideas going on that life, life will uh, always find a way. There you go. Life uh, finds a way. Bringing the gold bloom in, but that's what we're talking about with especially these movies. Life will always find a way to keep going somehow some way even if everything around you seems fucked it's going into some direction you just have to get out under the thumb of some sort of corporate fucking dictator now the next film we'll talk about i don't know if life finds a way so much in that one <laughs> that one's eh, it's got some dark premises going on but it does have love overall i mean uh, that's the charming thing about the next film for me and i think why i embrace it so much i'll admit the the next movie is one of my favorites all of these are but the next movie is like a top 10 something i i watched uh heavily and it i don't know it, this is one of those things that i use film to invoke feelings for and the next movie when we get into that is something that definitely when i'm down and out i use to try and cheer up with which might be a sentiment about my weird brain but there's just something about not necessarily the negativity but the picture that is shown with hardware that i just find everlasting and somewhat beautiful and just like zardoz almost every effect you see in this movie was captured by the camera there is no heavy post there i mean our pickup shots and shit that was done in the background and some reshoots but almost entirely richard stanley had cameras running 24 7 he would sleep for a few hours and they would have the b group in shooting Everything was captured on camera, and it's dated just as Zardoz is, but this movie has a particularly beautiful appeal to it. I mean, it's during an era when cyberpunk uh, was at its heaviest. You've got some amazing early visuals from Gore. You've got some ministry in the soundtrack. Obviously, you have the, the, the very heavy song by uh, Public Images, LTD. This is what you want. This is what you get. This is what you want. The, uh, the Order of Death, which is funny. Apparently, John Lydon was supposed to be Angry Bob. And that would have been just a completely different spewing rant that yeah, Iggy Pop and John Lydon are just very, very different stones. And uh, two, you know who was supposed to be the original taxi driver? Our beloved one and true only God, Lemmy, portrayed it in the film. Uh, I can't remember, but I know the answer to this. Fucking Sinead O'Connor. Yeah, that's right. That's the weird one. I yeah. think I would prefer Lemmy. I definitely prefer <laughs> Lemmy, but the, the visuals and the way Stanley captured this movie, which again is, you know, I brought up how beautiful and gorgeous the the soft muted tones and the lighting of Zardoz was. The way that they managed to capture it with uh, hardware was pretty much, as Stanley calls it, rock and roll lighting. And it was just a different type of ingenuity. It was lighting things like which is the opposition of Zardoz, like a black and white movie. And what you managed to capture was a lot of the heavy shadows and a lot of this leering, awful feeling that there's just something in the, the background. And that's what really works because the robot hides consistently throughout the movie. So you have this 
uh, anticipatory factor of shadows and darkness and the the unknown, um, even possibly to an extent touching upon things like xenophobia and like Mo's uh, inability to see things differently, which definitely is a a xenophobic trait with Christianity and the belief of I, I know because I have the belief. I think what's kind of underestimated about Richard Stanley as a filmmaker is more often than not, you don't have someone who's a strong visualist and also a strong storyteller. And Richard Stanley has both of those. I mean, look at somebody like fucking Zack Snyder. They always go from the visionary mind of Zack Snyder. He can make things look somewhat pretty. And sometimes he makes it look like gray washed out garbage. But I mean, visually he can do some things. I mean, he doesn't know when to say no to slow-mo and a bunch of other shit, but as a storyteller, though, Zack Snyder is shit. He's not a storyteller at all. But Richard Stanley, he's a storyteller. And he also can, like, handle the visual side as well. Because there is a definite look and feel to hardware. As there is to, you know, Dust Devil, uh, Color Out of Space, all of his films. But I think this one is, like, this and uh, Dust Devil's most consistent, like, vision, I would say. Of really kind of for a, a look and a style that he's going for in both films and a mood and a tone. Uh, and I think the color of space is a completely different tone than all those. I think that fits into a new category, but that also has to do with passing of time and his age. And I think he's really starting to get more into psychedelic filmmaking, which I can be. I don't know. Let's see what his next thing is. What's he doing next? What's his? He's doing another Lovecraft one, isn't he? I think at this point he's attempting to do a Lovecraft trilogy, which obviously makes it that, you know, acknowledge his mindset has changed. I think the dystopic future and the horrible, awful, you know, aspects of what's going to happen aren't going to be told. That he's pushed to try and tell his story for years, and now he's regressing and going back to tell it a different way. Because visually his style is just, it's much more positive. It's lit differently. It has a whole air of tomorrow as to where previously Stanley's work just seemed dismal. And uh, not in a negative way, it just seemed to... Uh, invoke with its colors and his palettes and his use of constant spirals and circles that it's just going to be red and dismal and we're going into this awful future. And I mean, that's where you've got the end of hardware in the beginning or the end of Dust Devil and the uh, beginning of hardware that these two universes collide and everything is timeless at any point that everything can transcend. That's all different universes. You get into a really deep depth of things with Richard. I think I'm done with hardware. I think we're ready to. I'm ready to move on. Are you ready to move on? I think maybe my favorite movie on this list. I mean, I love Richard Stanley with all my heart, and I could talk about him fucking nonstop. But a boy and his dog. I uh, I will put this forward to that. I am more familiar with the. Uh, I guess you'd call it a short story, although it is fairly long for I a think short it's a story. Novella. I think. I mean, we can just call it that. It's not a novel, like, yeah, but a novella. Um. More so than the movie. I've seen the movie like once or twice. Uh, I'm not not I'm not not a fan of the movie, but I am as far as Harlan Ellison, the writer goes, I am always more a fan of the written word with him because like most of the things that have been um, made like film or television out of his books have not been great. But like his books, though, they're just some next level shit, especially for like a sci-fi writer of the 1960s and 70s. Someone who wrote for Babylon 5 and shit like Star Trek. And I mean, he was like, I would put him and Richard Matheson on the same level with each other of just being like 
incredibly interesting science fiction style writers. I think a lot of the issues when it comes down to fans with this movie is really Harlan Ellison's fault. He had a breakdown while trying to transcribe this, and initially he was going to do the screenplay. It's written and directed by the amazing L.Q. Jones. L.Q. Jones. Was he Barnaby Jones? I wish. I do. I can't remember. What was he in? L.Q. Jones was one of Peckinpah's players, and he started off in his playhouse and began a career in westerns and action movies and then moved on into, uh, as Harlan Ellison called him, the king of the B-movies, which was, this is one of his first you know, three major productions throughout the, the 60s and going into the 70s, and he wanted to do this early on. Uh, somebody had given him a copy of the book, and according to L.Q. Jones, by the time he got to the end of it, he literally was on the floor laughing, and that was when he wanted to do it, around 1970. And he had started an idea of the script and had been working with Harlan Ellison, who had pretty much, his agreeance to do this was, you're not going to animate the dog's mouth, right? And that was, you know, first things fucking last. No, that sounds awful. We're not going to do that. And they worked on and off uh, up until... What, like 73 or so and Harlan just couldn't get the job done he for the first time in his life in his own words could not finish something that the only thing he was ever uh, perfect at was being able to write and just write and write and write and write and a boy and his dog is incredibly personal and what you're looking at is Harlan Ellison is both characters he is Vic and he is blood and when he wrote the story he had a just an amazing perfection in his mind of how things needed to be. And when LQ stepped in, it just didn't work that way. And there's a great uh, featurette that Shout Factory released of these two gentlemen uh, up in age talking about <laughs> the production, which is, it, it, it's mesmerizing. I mean, at some points, Harlan... Any commentary with Harlan Ellison is going to be interesting because he is not going to pull any punches. He will say what is on his mind to whoever oh, yeah. is around. Like, well, you kind of fucked this up. Well, he straight up says to LQ, you know, this shit-kicking cowboy, this man of white, or white trash uh, lineage is going to write my fucking movie, and he just couldn't. That uh, LQ sat down and finished the script and came up with, to me... And this is such an arguable thing, and I'm kind of glad it might happen on this show. You're a massive fan of the story, and I'm a massive fan of the movie, and I, I'm, I acknowledge both of them. But I think what L.Q. Jones managed to do was uh, translate something timelessly. And I reference this with Zardoz, that uh, within its own universe, the movie is believable. But there is something about a boy and his dog that is starkly different and is uh, just so much more powerful because the fucking lead character pretty much is a dog, and you never once question why he can talk, how Vic can understand him. None of these things manifest in your mind because of what is shown to you, and this is something that LQ was, you know, enforced by, taught by Sam Peckinpah. A movie is a picture. A motion picture is still a picture. So the most important aspect of your job is to make sure that whatever your story is can be shown through pictures and visuals. It does not matter. Sound is not important. And I know there's people screwing. Sound design is one of the most important things about movies. I don't know what you're talking about. Look at David Lynch. Sound design. Uh, you, if you can't hear the ethereal whooshing in the background, fuck off. I get it. I love it. It's whatever. I'll jerk off to fucking Mulholland Drive soundtrack every day of the week. But the point I'm trying to expressly state is what makes this goddamn movie perfect is the lead character is a talking dog. You don't question a goddamn thing about it, but everything you're shown on screen is absolution. Uh, just how we've discussed with Midsummer, uh, having to do director's cuts and so much being cut out. You look at something like L.Q. Jones, Boy and His Dog. 
everything on screen is 100% there for a reason. And the visuals and the depiction of the society and this world, it's, it's so overwhelming and so bizarre because it's all mud. Everything is just the stark, deserted, awful wasteland. Uh, what World War Four lasted five days until as long as the nuclear silos could get out. And everyone is gone. Everything is just this awful scenario of, of no life. It truly is survival. It's past even a Romero aspect. It's kill or be killed to the even extent that like women, the one of the first scenes of the movie is Vic trying to get laid, and they find a rape victim. And oh, I don't know why they That's had the to thing cut her. That it, it, like it gets hard for people to engage with the story because the protagonist of it is a fucking rapist. Because in this future world, he and the dog have an agreement. The dog finds him women to rape, and he finds food for the dog to eat because the boat. Because both of them can't do one of those things. So it's this like this like, you know, agreement that they have together. And you have to kind of get over the fact that your lead male is just there to fuck. And that's what it's going to like. I mean, that's what it would be in this post-apocalyptic world. Do you think well, it's, it's not, not going what to be it would some be, kind of crazy what it is. fucking what? I mean, it's not what it would be. That's what it is right now, though. I mean, that's yeah. literally the perspective of even you've brought this up recently. People's issues with movies like Birds of Prey. There's not enough tits in it. Where's my tits? Why can't I see Harley Quinn's tits? That's all generally the aspect that, uh, and I, I guess it is the the male perspective fully. That's what's generally looked at that you can't get off to. Well, something. you're gonna break down all once the society's gone. All the societal norms will be gone, and then male will just be swinging fucking dick male. Oh wait, here's the and best statement: Boys will be boys. Isn't that what the judge said about Brock Turner? Boys will be boys. I mean, that's kind of the sentiment with this. Of well, the world's ended, but you got to get your jollies off, right? I mean, it must be really hard not being able to jerk off. And that's where Harlan Ellison comes in because one aspect is his pubescent I idea. Guess the, but the, overall, but the though, there wouldn't blood. be nobody's really a hero in this story. There are no real heroes in this story. This is just a story about absolutes and what is in life. It has nothing to do with, well, do you like this character? Can you empathize with this character? I don't think you're supposed to empathize with the with the lead in this. I don't think it's the lead. I think it's blood. I think what the representation here is that the animal is more human than anyone else. That blood is the only one that actually, not that he's the brains, and he is. I mean, Vic has nothing in his head. The amazing Don Johnson. I call him amazing, but that's just because I like him. Don Johnson, in one of his earliest roles, I think he had just done uh, some pilots and some maybe TV stuff before this. This is way before Nash Bridges. But uh, blood is the representation of humanity, and the idea of putting it into the dog, I think, is what is uh, almost a black comedic move with LQ and his direction and his writing is the most humane and normal character is the canine. And you have the scene where Vic is just fucking nonstop and he's just bored. He's bored of this entirety. And it's not like the immortals from Zardoz. It's not that sex doesn't appeal to him. It's just that part of the brain is just uh, stupid. You're not doing anything to progress. You're not doing anything to make life better. You're just fucking and it's boring. Well, not only that, I mean, what eventually happens is he goes in this underground city where they've tried to hold on to the past so fucking hard that they've even started their own like little bit of eugenics program because uh, they just want sperm so they can, well, they're just not enough white babies in our underground bunker for it to be the 1950s, this conservative 
fascist fucking society they've created underground. It's supposed to be the perfect Topeka, Kansas, and they've taken this idea. They have yeah, uh, Arlington. Fascist America. Well, yeah, that's that's where I'm going. I mean, when you get down to the underground bunker, you're greeted by Arlington National Cemetery and this great ideology of nationalism and people dying for your freedom. And as he progresses and goes to it, you start seeing the characters and like they all have this insane clown makeup on but like the ideology and point behind that is you know like 1776 the founding fathers all these great neck frills and crazy makeup that they wore these people have taken these aspects of time and have made something different out of it and god damn everything goes back to zardoz tonight but when friend yes takes, it does well friend takes zed through uh the whole hall of the gods where zed says you know these are gods what happened to them and friend laughs and says they died of boredom but in actuality it's all statues it's all pieces of history and art and wonderful and beautiful paintings and you go into the underground in a boy and his dog and they're wearing this weird uh colonial era makeup and they're all dressing like it's uh 1950s topeka kansas and it's a county fair and they've got this just bizarre idea of life and this antiquity behind uh uh, what's that word Nietzsche loved so much? Uh, decadence. That it's just this weird decadent future. Like when they're sitting outside at the end of the movie, they're in this very weird park, but they have Tiffany lamps sitting everywhere. And it's just this idea of what culture possibly was. Like, you know, that Twilight Zone where everybody reads, or it's a Star Trek, I think, where they're speaking English the entire time. And it's because of the future left on Earth and they had to learn through books. They've corrupted themselves reading the wrong parts of history and getting behind the wrong parts of history and have taken these perfect ideologies like eugenics and we have to keep continuing and making this even like to a Judaic stance, a better world for Christ and whatever. Well, and meanwhile, up top, everything is fucked. There's no saving any of this. The world is going, it might not be a positive place, but it's progressing to where it's fucking progressing. And meanwhile, you're trying to hold on to this, some past fucking imaginary version of reality that you think you might want. And it's like, it's goddamn nonsense that will swallow you alive like it does in this film. I think their entire point is saving the world i think that's the idea behind what everyone has and that they're saving all in the right their world exactly because their version of what the world is when in actuality that's not the world at all you're just saving your ass well, at the beginning of the movie, you're given a representation of how brutal life is, that Vic wants to get laid right off the bat, and when he finds the woman, she's been uh, just completely destroyed. And it's like, uh, what do we call it when you kill somebody at war? Casualties? They're, they're a casualty that these people found her and they raped her and they decided to destroy it so nobody else could have it. So this is like the sentiment of what society is, that women aren't even like given an acknowledgement or an idea of human race, that they obviously have to run and hide and they can't be exposed. There's something to fuck. Yeah, that is exactly all they are. Jackie Treehorn treats objects like women. But he pretty much is surviving on the idea of, well, at least I can get laid and things are going to be better, which takes us back to that controlling capitalistic just bullshit of, well, I get up and I work 90 hours a week, but it helps because it helps pay for this, 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 and this. And what is the this, 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 and this? It Nothing really truly matters when you're stuck in this idea. Like, well, even for me, I just bought $400 worth of Blu-rays. What? 
the fuck does that do to continue or push my life into a new or greater direction? It makes me forget about how miserable my life is. Just like hardware. It makes hardware. me forget about how miserable this goddamn job is. Hey, why don't I earn this extra $10,000 in overtime so I can go on a vacation? Hey, dude, or don't you, you want to just... vote for so-and-so because they're going to legalize weed? Don't you want legal weed, government weed? Don't we need that? It's not that I'm against it probably smoking weed as we're recording this. But isn't there a strange idea to how suddenly your government went from shooting people and sending them to prison for life for a dime bag of weed to, why don't you smoke this? It's good for you. Just a thought. So, I mean, Don Johnson, who plays, what the hell is the character's name? Vic. Vic, yes. I can, like I said, it's been a while. Um, Vic, he's promised... Sex, he's promised food, he's promised all these things. But the sex is not really what he's going to get because sex, quote-unquote, is orgasms without pleasure, basically. It's just semen collection. I think you're focusing, too, very heavily on the uh, the Ellison novella, that what you're presented and what you're given in the L.Q. Jones movie isn't really imperative on sex. You have an understanding that both of them are surviving with each other, but at the very essence of the movie, he just wants to get pussy. Like, that's what you're... When you're given this direction to the character, you're not given the amount of depth that Ellison has provided. And as you were touching upon with Richard Stanley... Uh, Harlan Ellison is just a background guy. He's a storyteller. It's what he's fantastic at. I mean, he's written over, uh, got at least a hundred books, uh, seventeen hundred short stories. He's written like forty movies. The guy's career is is absolutely legendary, and his prose and his mindset's legendary. But when you translate it, I think it it changes gears a little bit to more of uh, something that you talk about a lot and are very interested in is is just the essence of survival. That blood and Vic are surviving one off of each other and the sexual nature isn't as heavily shown but that certainly is at call for harlan um he was really upset with the first cut of this movie and just found it a bit misogynistic at its nature and i mean harlan ellison even in his own words considers himself a 20th century guy so he was much uh, before his time with women's rights and feminism and a lot of concepts that, as he says in his own words to L.Q. Jones, you're a little bit more misogynistic than I am, and your brain went to a different direction as to where Harlan feels himself as a general misanthrope. He hates everyone. He does not care about race, creed, sex, religion. He just does not care about anyone. And L.Q. manipulated things certainly a little bit, but what you have to understand with this uh, is, uh, obviously, this was going to be a drive-in movie. This wasn't going to go up for the Academy Award, so you have to uh, have a little bit of uh, provocative stuff with your audience, and I don't mean this in a defensive statement because a lot of it is incredibly misogynistic, and I, I agree with Harlan to full extent that there's just a lot of weird hatred toward women shown in this uh, future society, and I understand the importance of it being shown on screen and being brought up, but it just is accentuated upon a bit too much. It's pushed in your face a bit too much. For where the story ultimately goes goes in A Boy and His Dog, with that misogynistic attitude, it makes the ending look more that it's kind of a little bit more anti-woman or anti-female than it really is because it's just pragmatic in the book. It doesn't matter that she's a woman or she's not a woman because let's just, I mean, let's just 
explain what the ending is. I think it really matters in the book as well because the one thing that Vic learns from she had a crazy name, was it Quilla June? Quilla June, I think something like that. What he learns from her though is a difference of compassion and and literally a little bit of respect. I mean, uh, to an extent because we know what happens to her, but it transgresses from him being just. The average well, he guy. figured out what actual love was, though, because he doesn't love her. He was infatuated with sexual uh, behavior with her. But what he does know, what true love is, is the love him and blood have together. So he, he's willing to sacrifice other things so him and blood can be together because that actually is true love. He understands love now. I mean, I don't think that's not apparent and lacking in, in the motion picture. I just think that the way it was shown is much more sardonic. And I think it almost happens to have a, a, a bit more of a clever touch because when you're reading the story and, and you go through the paragraphs and you realize that a character is missing and that something has happened, you have almost the exact same thing in the movie. I mean, you listen to the soundtrack, you can hear fat dripping into the fire and it crackling, and if you listen into that, you can realize, oh, and of course, Blood makes the statement of, you know, well, if we walk all day, you might have to cook up the rest for me and he doesn't eat it i think that was the big issue that harlan had is in the movie it's not set in stone and clear that vic doesn't eat the meat and uh spoilers sorry for a 40 year old fucking movie this woman that vic falls in love with is eventually dog food literally and it needed to be much more clear that vic was not a cannibal and i think that's really where harlan got upset with things because it's him vic and blood are both uh his id and and his everything you know uh his id and his everything how prophetic and sigmund freud of me but all aspects of his fucking mind is what the the character was and so when it was translated into something that was a bit more uh crude i guess you could say it it shocked him and bothered him and harlan's a bit of a sensitive guy and well shit any writer is any artist is when you see your work changed uh it it, it fucks with you but the representation that LQ brought onto the screen, I think, helps even make it more relevant of, like, you know, this uh, mud-filled, apocalyptical land, and downstairs everything is this weird, eugenics-based, awful society, and all that truly matters is is love and compassion, and that's the one thing he managed to find out of all of it. It's just kind of Sex bitter. didn't even matter at a certain point. It's yeah. actual feeling and compassion. It's... And I think in the movie, one of the things that bothered me a little bit about it is it shows kind of how, because Don Johnson's kind of portraying it as almost like a sad moment. And I don't think it's a sad moment as much like in the book because it's this pragmatic moment of this is what has to happen. That it's like, I'm not happy about this or not, like, but I'm not like fucking upset about it because this is the choice I'm having to make. And I'm like, okay, I've made the choice. And I think that's a little bit of the things that throw me off at the end of this because it's just like the the way it's revealed in the actual story itself is just line by line. Um, you kind of start figuring out what is going on in the movie. It's just kind of boom, done, right in your face, and it's over with. But that's, a, a, again, a difference between like literature and film. That they, I mean, translating something to film, it has to be somewhat different than literature. And you're able to, especially if you're Harlan Ellison, like get really interesting in the language you're using to describe the situation that's going on. When you get to visuals like that, you have like you kind of have to change your mode a little bit. And I think I agree much more with the the way the book does it or the story does it than how the film does it. It's just I don't know. It's a lot 
classier in the book. It's not. It doesn't seem quite as exploitive. It doesn't seem like ah, not, not, like less of a punchline. Like in, in the movie, it feels kind of like that. It feels like a punchline. I kind of have to go back to what L.Q. Jones has to say with what he learned from Sam Peckinpah is a film is a picture, and that's something that takes us back to Zardoz and Hardware. Both of those films managed to capture everything in the camera, that all of these effects, all of these wonderful things, these insane visuals that you saw were done live, that they weren't post. And most filmmakers now don't know how to do that. Most filmmakers now are relying on digital cameras and digital software and all of these tricks, all of these beautiful things that help move you into the story, help you lose yourself into these four walls that you were given inside of the film are completely gone. And it's not like an insult to modern filmmaking or modern independent filmmakers, but certainly 90% of the trade has been lost. It doesn't matter that you didn't go to film school, but there were intricacies that were caught and captured and used with film and actual cameras that can't be done anymore. And it doesn't matter how great your green screen is or your graphic designer that's going to come back through and help or your color correction. There are things and aspects that are just completely gone. And LQ Jones and his... At, uh, what he learned specifically through Peck and Paul, and that idea of this is a picture. You have to capture it all. You have to take all the things that Harlan wrote and all these details. And like Richard Stanley, uh, his use of being able to use these dictators and these fantastical ideas that are in his head as background images to force the story forward. There's a lot that you need to look forward to in the background. There's a lot that you need to look to in the lack of acting or the lack of humanity uh not so much acting but the lack of you know emotion through some of these characters some of them are just uh, incredibly bizarre you got jason robarb's character is lou craddock and he's just every emotion goes through his face everything in his performance is just almost over the top and like a soap opera but it plays through because of that bizarre makeup and how they decided to set the scenes and how they gave this weird visual and made you believe you're in this underground complex and what makes it is the magic the trickery just being able to show you one thing in the left corner and something completely different in the right and it's just the uh, ingenuity of the director i don't think Harlan's story was incredibly translatable outside of a bare, bismal, uh, apocalyptic well, story. Harlan, Harlan Ellison's books and stories are in no way, shape, or form meant to be translated into any sort of film because he is specifically writing it for like as the written word. If you want to try to do something with it, that's fine. But it, like that, there's a reason there's not to me Harlan Ellison movies is because. It's how he writes that's what makes it important. It's the journey he takes you through reading the story that is what makes it interesting. The, the, the concepts themselves end up being the fucking Terminator. I mean, not to say the Terminator's not I mean, let's look at the Road but... Warrior. I mean, George Miller himself says the Road Warrior is just the commercial version of a boy and his dog. Yeah, and it's it's more of the journey he takes you on with the words he chooses and the way he chooses to reveal those words and to like even to paragraph structures and things like that. Like that's, what's interesting about literature. And he's one of the most interesting like writers uh, for me personally, like that I've ever encountered like him, Kurt Vonnegut, uh, to a certain extent, uh, Chuck Palahniuk, uh, he's kind of dropped off, or but like his early stuff was very powerful, just on how he tells the story and the written word. Uh, John Schwartzwelder, if you want to get into that, uh, 
David Wong, same thing. It's a lot of, it's not even so much the story that you're getting. It's how I'm telling the story to you and how it's reverberating inside of your brain. That's interesting. And Harlan Wilson was, or Ellison was a fucking master of that. I think with the translation of the film and what LQ Jones managed to bring to the screen is uh, a very adequate interpretation of that. And although it has its own liberties, I think being able to translate what Harlan wrote and bringing it forward into this vision brought a lot of it uh, to people. It got knowledge. as close as anybody's going to get with Harlan Ellison. I will tell you that much. It's somewhat remarkable that for years he completely disowned it and didn't like it. And he's had a lot of issues with LQ, but uh, that that featurette I mentioned that's on the uh, Shout Factory disc, he straight up says that this is me, a boy and his dog and I are one, and it's the film over the book. And I found that uh, incredibly bizarre, just, you know, a writer in general being able to say, at this point, I think the vision is clearly shown the best way it could in, in this facet. And LQ Jones in general, I mean, out of his entirety and his body of work, this is something, this is a completely different beast than anything else he's done, anything else he's produced, anything else he's been in. I mean, it's no casino, but there's something to be said about the lack of care. I mean, it's just a bizarre aspect that you don't, outside of blood, you don't really care about Vic. You don't really care about the story. You end up fascinated by what's happening to the dog. You watch him more than anything else. I mean, it's absolutely bizarre that the dog outacts Don Johnson, and it's truly what you're fixated on. Even to the extent that children that saw this movie when it came out were more fascinated on that to where they thought it was a, a, a Disney movie. People wanted to see blood live because he was the most human character. He was the one you could relate to. He was the one that made sense. And he's really, yes, he's the important one. And because he actually, he's not a dumb fuck. He's the only character in the, the, the story that has a good idea of who and what he is and what he is after and like what the whole point of all of this is. And everybody else is just kind of mindlessly trying to hold on to some sort of idea of what might bring them pleasure. And it's <clears throat> so like the only protagonist you could have is blood in this story. Cause everybody else is kind of a piece of shit. Well, it's like the uh, non-aggressive aspect of just being one of those that fade away into society. They've not come to my rights. They've not come for me. They've not attacked me yet, so you don't care. You lay down your arms and you wait, and you just don't give a shit. And uh, that's pretty much where society's at at this point, what we're, we're recognizing in a boy and his dog. No one cares. You've got the fantastic scene where blood is hungry and Vic goes out to find food for him and shoots a guy in the fucking head and steals all their food and runs away. But you're cheering because that's who you're representing. You have, well, the dog's going to get fed. Everything's going to be okay, but he just killed somebody. Human life has no matter. And it's just like what you see on the news. You can sit and read that a man was strangled to death or somebody was shot by the police, but it didn't happen to you and it didn't happen to your loved ones. So it doesn't affect you and it just goes away. You read this article, you recognize this, you changed your profile picture, but you didn't do anything. No, because at the end of the day, all you want is for your life to be as easy as possible while you deal with the massive ulcer you've created in your stomach by ignoring everything that's going on around you. Welcome to real life. Yeah, you just want to get laid. You just want to send your dog out to fight screamers and get laid. It's kind of a bummer we didn't get any emphasis on those characters. That's one of my favorite scenes of the movie, and I eh. think 
Well, it's just a really intricate design, and uh, that's uh, well, even God, that's expounding on what makes it somewhat fun, like bringing up why he can talk, why he's a psychic dog. You don't need to know that. You don't need to know it's, anything. It's irrelevant. And like I think with all these films tonight, we have not gone into a specific like story of, well, it's the future, and it's because, I mean— it's we're relating it all this to actual real life bullshit as opposed to just like breaking down every little fucking detail of what happens. And I think that's more important, especially when you're talking about these issues than like monotony within the, the structure of the story. Who gives a shit? Like who gives a shit? Why the dog is psychic? It's what the, the psychic dog means to the overall narrative of the story we're trying to tell. And I think that's what kind of tonight's episode is mostly about. That's what I mean with the screamers or the howlers or whatever they're called. You've got one of my favorite sequences where you're in this gymnasium and it's been converted all to a hospital and it's all these abandoned beds and it's burnt out. And this is where Vic sees the the girl that's been left for him eventually throughout the movie. And uh, it's just this, uh, this massive scene where blood ends up telling him all right, well, pretend you're a screamer and you're given this very brief idea and you get this look into what the villains may be, that there's some sort of raiders or sand people that wear all green and will attack and scream and fight. And you've got this, one of the most uh, horrific sequences of the movie, just a, a true horror story of everyone fighting and uh, absolute fear. And then the true ones actually show up, but you're given no scene. You you don't know what they look like. You don't know who they are. You're just given an extensuation of what the fear may be and that there's an idea that there are awful, horrible beings that are wandering around in this world causing mayhem and mischief, but you just know enough that it can be used as a device. And that's what really works without the entirety of this movie. I mean, even in the same scene when Vic discovers the girl, it could have just been him looking down and seeing a nude woman, but he has to go through this entire gymnasium filled with hospital beds until he sees light trickling out through a wall and he recognizes what's going on and he sees the nudity and that's what really invokes his feeling. It's not the death. It's not the fact that he had to kill three or four people to get down there. It's that he saw bare breasts and now he can finally get some form of emotion or feeling just like the very bored uh, non-existent catatonic people and Zardoz. They just don't have any feeling until some sexual desire is invoked inside of them. So you have the representation of just how easily people are led. Like some Sean Connery sweat. That's what I need, baby. Big old ass crack sweat. And I mean, at that point in the movie, he's been pretty dirty. They don't show him taking a shower. He never takes a shower in that movie, but there are no showers. There is only the tabernacle... I will not go to level seven. Level two. I won't meditate with you. Oh, Zardoz. <laughs> uh, all right. So, well, we're canceled. I don't know. It's a weird mix of, uh, I don't know, chaotic society. Nothing is entirely happy in any of these movies. But the point is, isn't that they're unhappy everyone's boredom everyone's mundane existence is because of something uh, lecherous that is on top of them the fascist insect feeding upon all of us no one has any individuality like hardware the whole point of the movie is these robots we don't know what they're for we don't know where they're coming from or why they're even in existence this one person's struggle is everyone's this is going to happen to all of us this is population control this is the end yeah that sums it up 
Well, I guess at this point, the ashtray is full and the bottle's empty. We'll be back next week if I can get the weird robot that's hiding out in my blinds out of the house. It's like a two-hour fucking show. Probably longer. recorded in front of a dead studio audience. Portions of today's programming have been mechanically reproduced. The management and the staff wish you a pleasant good night and good morning. Bob, the man with the industrial dick, coming at you loud and clear on WAR Radio. Rise and shine, folks. It's a beautiful day. Just look at that sky. It's a work of art. <laughs> Nature never knew colors like that. Ich sag dazu der to kill the brutals who multiply and are legion. This end, Zardoz, your god, gave you 
the gift of the gun. The gun is good. That gun is good! The penis is evil. The penis shoots seeds and makes new life to poison the earth with a plague of men, as once it was. But the gun shoots death and purifies the earth of the filth of brutals. Go forth and kill.